We're doing a five-part series in this book, um, and it has to be said it's one of the most interesting but also most contentious books um, of the Bible. The book itself doesn't really mention explicitly God himself. There are numerous interpretive issues as well uh, with the book, as we'll come to later. And many have been put off reading this book or encouraged not to go to it too young, if you like, because, as you see, erotic language kind of dominates the numerous poems that make up the whole. But it is, as the title says, it's the Song of Songs. By that it means it's the superlative song, the song above all other songs within this literature of the Bible. And it's a collection of erotic love poems from a man, uh, between a man and a woman. But it's in Scripture, so at the same time, it's, it is given from God to us, lovingly placed here to help us to enjoy what God has given. And I think what we've seen, uh, some of you commented, is it's a really beautiful picture, isn't it? It's beautiful and it's exciting because it's intimate, but also it's safe. Uh, there is commitment here before the intimacy uh, that we see later on. And as a result of that, the romance and the love flourishes uh, between the man and the woman. And today we get to the high point. Uh, and the cycle that you see throughout the book is, uh, I, I've mentioned it in a couple of weeks before, it's you have an anticipation, a longing to begin with. That was, uh, we saw that in the first week. And then there's the inviting, the kind of wooing, the courting, whatever you want to call it. And then you have the waiting, the patient waiting for the final kind of consummation or fulfilment. Now today, actually, we find ourselves right in the centre of the whole of this book. Uh, in fact, when you get to the, the most intimate part of this book, um, you've got 111 lines each side of, in, in the poetry, each side of the, the kind of the high point. Uh, and the writer does that purposely. He wants us to see that this is where everything is pointing toward. Now, before we dive in, let's refresh our minds and go back first week. We saw in chapter 1 through to 2, verse 7, that anticipation, that longing. But it finished with a warning. Do you remember? Look at 2, verse 6, if you'd like to. Um, 2, verse 7, sorry. To not awaken love before its time or arouse love. And the same warning comes at the end of the second passage we saw uh, in chapter 3, verse 5. See it there if you can. The warning is, and the point is, love should be kept until it's right time we are called to wait that is the commitment must come before the intimacy the fulfillment and we've seen that that wait can be quite painful um, and, and if love isn't found and, and, and love is lost in a sense it is unbearably painful as we saw last week now inevitably here we must be sensitive here some will have and will feel the scars right now of prematurely awakening love and it being lost. And I pray today, I, I, the real prayer as I've been going through this, will be that you will, uh, this will help you, in a sense, long for God honouring love at its right time. Because it then, uh, hopefully, you'll be able to see the great joy of it in God's creative plan. Be content, I guess, is the, is the point. Be content as you wait, knowing and enjoying, not only that you are honouring God in that way, but also that knowing and enjoying the greater intimacy that all of us should know and what is being pointed to in these passages. We'll come to that at the end. 
So as we begin, uh, you'll see on your sheets, uh, I've put a little point, an introduction point, the joy and delight of marriage. And, uh, you know, again, if you're, if you're not married and you're, you're here today, you're going, right, this is the moment I kind of just switch off, I can give, you know, do a bit of doodling and so on. Please try hard. Uh, don't sort of switch off in frustration and resignation. I think there is so much here for all of us, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, because this is wisdom from God either to help us prepare for marriage or in marriage itself. Certainly now, but also in the world to come. But let's be honest here, as we turn down, look at chapter 3, verse 6. I mentioned the interpretive issues of this passage. Uh, They begin right from the beginning, and it's quite a, a difficult one. Who is this coming up from the wilderness? And that is, in a sense, the big interpretive question here. Who is it? Who is coming out of the wilderness? Now, some think it's a woman. Uh, I can't see that, and I've looked at a few commentaries. Some people say that. Some think it's Solomon. That would be the most obvious, given it's Solomon's carriage in the, in the poetic vision, so a dream, uh, or just the poem itself. Others just say it's the man, saying that the man in the, in the whole of Solomon, Solomon isn't, isn't Solomon himself. It could be that. Now, I don't want to dwell on this too much, uh, but I think it's really important to realise that this is first and foremost a poem, a love poem. In verse 6, a person is being spoken of in the distance uh, whose smell is intoxicating. Okay? Now, that is a seriously, seriously smelly person, isn't it? If, you know, in the distance, you know, they can see this column of smoke, but they can still smell that individual all that way off. Now, in reality, you cannot smell an individual at that kind of distance. You can smell a farmyard of animals at that kind of distance, but an individual, no. The point I'm making is that this is a poem, okay? So you have to see the kind of the, the language being employed in a poem. Um, even images are used to employ, uh, are employed to describe how the woman views her groom, um, and we'll see that throughout. So, so get your head. This is a poem. So therefore, the person in verse six, yes, it could be Solomon. It, it's most likely Solomon. It could just be a man, and the woman is using the image of Solomon in his kind of carriage uh, to say, this is how I view my man. Uh, To be honest, it doesn't really matter. Uh, What it does show us is, is what she is delighting in is her man, whoever that is, her man. And what what is thrilling her is what she sees in him. And we can learn a lot from that as we look through the passage. Hence our first point, we're going to go into that now. We see the woman delighting in her groom. Have a look at her down at verses 6 to 11 there. Now it's good to realise what's going on here because uh, all the carriages you know, that you see here, the, the warriors with their swords, the gold, the silver, the purple cloth. Now it can seem a little bit strange, can't it, at first glance. You think, I had a wedding maybe, or you know, I've been to a few weddings, wasn't quite like this. What's going on? Now, think about that last wedding you went to. How long did it last? I have many of us here, might, I've talked to you about this. Yeah. Weddings can be sort of mini endurance tests, can't they? You know, you go, it kind of goes on, there's another bit, and then some people go away for a bit, and then come back again, and then all day. You know, it's, it's a bit of an endurance test sometimes. To be honest, we've not seen anything. These things, the, the wedding uh, feasts in this time, Jewish culture, went on for days and days and days, at least seven days. 
And that was the last stage of six stages uh, before you got to uh, the wedding day, all of which would require meticulous planning. And even, you know, we've got a royal wedding coming up. That, that, that was nothing in comparison to what we see here in its fulfilment. And this is a big, this is a really, really big day. And, and it's interesting, as you look back, and I was reading sort of some of the history of this, it's very much the groom's day. I don't know how we've kind of turned it around in that way, but it's very, very much the groom's day. Uh, we, we sing, like, here comes the bride, you know, all that kind of stuff. It, there it would be very much, here comes the groom. Because he has the greatest responsibility. Uh, after a dowry was paid, and dowry was essentially a payment uh, to the bride's family, essentially an assurance payment that if the marriage kind of went belly up, that she would be protected. Uh, the couple would then be anointed, um, in a sense, ceremonially cleansed, to be set apart for each other. Uh, you know, our engagements have got nothing on what's going on here. Um, and after that, what's called a mikvah, the, the, the ceremonial kind of setting apart, the woman will get on, a, um, get a, get about for her time to prepare. Her role was to simply prepare her wedding dress now, and and to be prepared uh, to be a beautiful bride for her groom. And the groom, though, would then have to go away for a, a great deal of time. They may not see each other in this period of time, and he would have to go make a house. And he would have to make sure that he had a living in order to be able to support what would be his wife and also the potential for family in the future. Uh, the, the interesting thing is that he didn't then choose a date. His father was the one who chose the date. He was the one who determined whether his son was ready for the responsibility of marriage. And so, who is coming up from the wilderness in verse 6, like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh, and incense made from all spices, and so on? It's her man. It's her man who, the man that she's been betrothed to, who's been set apart for her, who has sweated to make sure that he can provide and protect her and only her. And this normally would have taken about a year, maybe more, and they may not have even seen each other in this time. Let's have a look at what she sees in him, though, because it's fairly extraordinary. As I said, the image of Solomon used, is used here. It doesn't have to be Solomon, but let's say it is. It's, it's fine. But what is she noticing poetically that is important to her as she looks to this man, her groom? What does she notice? Verse 7. We get a carriage supported by 60 warriors. Now, the point is, Solomon has 60 here. It's interesting because it's, it's double the amount of warriors that King David, his father, would have had. So he's sort of saying it's, very, it's a very grandiose sort of statement here. David's mighty men were the kind of fierce, loyal warriors of King David. Uh, 2 Samuel 23, you can read of them. And she looks to a lover here. And she knows what? Well, she knows she's incredibly safe. And the note prepared for the terrors of night. It's not saying, you know, the warriors were there with all their swords and everything, ready for the first kind of marriage tiff. You know, you know, do you remember your first ever argument as a married couple if you're married? You know, well, you know, it's not that. What was happening here is actually there were real dangers to the newlywed couples because they were vulnerable their first night. Everyone knew where they were. And everyone knew what they were doing. And they needed protecting. In verse 9 we see uh, that Solomon had made a carriage for himself. Now I'm not sure that that meant, you know, he got out the hammers and nails and cut down a few trees or bought them from Lebanon. Yeah, it, 
but he certainly had the ingenuity to get it done. He was someone who was able. He had an ability and probably quite a bit of taste as well. Look at the, he's got woods from Lebanon. It's cedar wood, it's beautiful wood. And it's quite opulent as well. Verse 10, he has the ability to provide. It's a wonderful picture of just lavish opulence, isn't it? For his bride. Posts of silver, Lebanon cedar wood. The most expensive thing actually there is the purple dye. And that was made from crushing up um, particularly well, quite rare fish of the area, dry fish, and it made this kind of purple uh, dye which you could then uh, put into cloth and so on. But the point is, nothing but the best for the one he loves. Now he could provide, and she's delighting in that. Now, you know, we mustn't kind of translate that to, if I can't provide X, Y, and Z, uh, you know, I, I'm not suitable to, to marry anyone. You know, this is not kind of a, a lady who's a bit of a gold digger or anything like that. She sees what's in most important, doesn't she? Have a look as she concludes. Daughters of Jerusalem, verse 11. Come out and look, O you daughters of Zion. Look on King Solomon wearing a crown. The crown with which his mother crowned him uh, on the day of his wedding. The day his heart rejoiced. His crown, that is, you know, he's ready... He's crowned, he's ready. Basically, he's, he's been honoured by his parents there. But the woman, essentially, she, what she sees most importantly, and the thing that essentially most excites her, look at it, it's the day his heart rejoiced. Now, she sees all this regalia, all this colour of smoke coming, all this amazing stuff, all the opulence there, but all she's, the main thing she sees, <coughs> as she concludes, she knows... This is my wedding day. Everything that she's been longing for and patiently waiting for, setting herself apart for, she sees she's going to protect me, he's going to provide for me, he's a man of nobility as well. But what she concludes with is so important. She sees the one whose heart is rejoicing for her. He wants her. and She delights in that. He loves her. And her heart rejoices in that. And so she says to her friends, essentially says, he's mine, he's coming, literally. In the Hebrew, it basically just says, woohoo. <laughs> Joke, never mind. But, you know, you get the idea. How valued and how loved she must feel, though. As he, this man, her man, approaches. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? What do we learn, though? After all, you you have to ask in a culture in which we live, is this worth waiting for? Now, how much would have the waiting added to that day, the anticipation, the longing? And please note that the waiting isn't just a neutral sitting around twiddling your thumbs and so on. It's not aimless. It is a time to prepare, which is what dating should be. Purposeful. And a time to prepare. Dating with no purpose or intention of marriage is, it, it's used a kind of term around us, it, you're playing someone. You're using someone. And if you are being played, can I, can I suggest to you, you very quickly and lovingly say goodbye. Though that may be painful. The woman has always known where their relationship is going and they have patiently waited and they have patiently prepared for this day. Don't drift in relationships. It's never a good ending if you do. 
So, uh, you know, think about this. Uh, this woman is delighting in a group. Uh, in, a, in a sense, this is a bit of a tick list of kind of who the person you should marry. Well, look at it. It's a, a, no, a man of noble character, we see. A man of good character before God and community. Secondly, someone who's safe, who will not harm you and who will protect you. Uh, thirdly, it's someone of, of ability we see here, uh, a man who will work well, who can call a plumber when necessary, or you know, something like that, has an ability. And he also must be able to provide. Uh, again, uh, when I say provide, it's basically beans on toast every night. That's enough. You don't need any more. So have right expectations. But he must be able to provide. And most importantly, right at the end, his heart must rejoice for you. Now, if you coerce or bribe or manipulate a man, and likewise, same the other way around as well, you, you know you're heading for a car crash, don't you? So a note for women before we move on. If your man gives you a gift, look at what this man is willing to lavish on his bride. You know, if, if a husband gives you a gift, yeah, what are you going to do? Are you ever going to say, oh, don't take it back? Oh, oh, it's too much. What are you saying if you say that to your love? You're essentially saying, I'm not very much. I'm not worth it. Don't be silly. They're trying to rejoice in you. A note for men, um, stewardship and all that sensible thing about money as well, but you know, you, you get the point. A note for men, I guess. Look at these qualities. And if you're married, of course, work hard to improve, provide, uh, to be noble, to provide, to protect, to let your heart rejoice in your love, of course. But if you're not married, well, don't date unless you are these. Unless you've grown up and this describes you. This doesn't mean you have to provide, you know, gleaming jewellery and go to all the most expensive shops and all that kind of stuff and provide in those ways. No, don't be silly. And also, don't be stupid and date beyond your means. I think you know what I mean by that. You know, don't suddenly date and say, oh, let's go to the best restaurants here and I'll buy you this and I'll get you that. And then when you get married, you go, I'm sorry, I've used it all up and I'm completely broke. <laughs> don't be stupid. Be honest about how wealthy you are. And provide. And if that means beans on toast, that's a romantic date. Just make it so. This woman is so excited as she sees her man. She respects him. She delights in him. It is in this context, isn't it, that love and romance blossoms. And we see the result, don't we, in the following verses, verses 1 to 7. Let's go to our second point. As the, now we see the other way around. He begins to delight in her. Now, women, please try to understand, if you can, men at this moment. Uh, we don't like to talk very much. We don't talk often. Um, and if, you, if a man sits on his own all day, he probably will grunt. And that is about the limit of where he'll get to. If you put two men together uh, for pretty much a day, they may say a couple of sentences. That's a great day for men. We love that. That's brilliant. Now, women, please be realistic. But men... There are some really, really, really important lessons for us here. So please be, have the humility to learn. This man is just celebrating and delighting in the beauty of his bride. Look at verse 1 and then look at verse 7. You'll see it's what we call an inclusio. It kind of wraps up this kind of section. And you see, firstly, her eyes are like doves in verse 1. That is, he sees her as pure and innocent. 
And then in verse 7, he says, there's no flaw in you. Now, the, the, the no flaw word is the same word used of, uh, when, when uh, in the Old Testament they describe the unblemished sacrifice uh, that would be used within the temple sacrifice, sacrificial system. Now in reality, we all know. We all know what we look like in the mirror in the morning. There's no person here who can say, hmm, unblemished, flawless. Well, unless you're slightly deceiving yourself. But the point is, in his eyes, his love has no blemish or flaw. And everything between verse 1 and 7 makes that clear. And what he does is he begins with her eyes and he works down. Everything, there's a symmetry about everything. Basically that's saying you've got all the right bits in the right places. Um, and... Or it's lush and it's in its right place. He, he, he makes a qualitative comment as well, much as a quantitative comment, if you like. Um, and we begin, uh, it goes down to her hair. It's like goats coming down from a beautiful mountain. Men, try this one, it really works. <laughs> I'm really um, it may not work for you as it works for here, but understand what's going on. The black-haired goats of that area, which was a beautiful area, um, as they came down the mountain, as they ran in the big flock, they would seem, because their, their, their hair was kind of lush and shimmery, it would seem like the whole mountain was moving. It was a beautiful image. And he's using that image to say, my hair, your, your hair, my darling, looks like that. And it's beautiful and stunning. This man is laying on thick, basically, and it's a good thing. Her teeth get a mention in verse 2. Now, you've got to remember, she's a country girl, uh, and um, there's no dentist or toothbrush uh, around, you know. So he compliments her teeth. That is, she has teeth. She has all her teeth. Each has its twin. He's basically saying, this is really good. I like what I see. Everything's symmetrical, and it's good. Her lips, verse 3, are scarlet. Scarlet's a colour which is pointed out very alluring um, and, and enticing, very kissable. Now, her temples get a comment, don't they? Like pomegranates. Again, we're not sure how that compliment particularly works, are we, uh, men today? But temples uh, sometimes were associated with cheeks. So it's kind of a similar point. He's just saying the flesh of a pomegranate, lovely, rosy, really attractive. And there's also an association here because Aaron's robe... Um, earlier on, has, has been decorated uh, with pomegranates around the bottom. There's a point here that, uh, within the temple system that there's a sacredness to the pomegranate, which is there, and it's here as well. So he's saying, not only are you very alluring, but there's a sacredness, a set-apartness that I love in you. In verse 4, her neck is elegant, beautifully long, strong like a tower. Verse 5, her body, and particularly her breasts, come into view. Men, note the order. Where did he start, and where is he finishing? Women, note the order that you want to be noticed first. Her breasts are described like two forms of a gazelle. It's a picture of symmetry, but also fertility. Basically, he likes what he sees and what it will bring in the future. Now, verse 6, it sounds like he might just about explode at this point uh, with excitement. He wants to go to the perfume mountains of his love. Now, given what he's talking about in the previous verse, I think you know what is on his mind, and I don't need to spell it out. But it is graphic, and it is a beautiful picture. 
and one that has blossomed and built up through the anticipation and the waiting. What do we learn here, though? What do we learn? I mean, it, in a sense, this man seems to have a bit of a PhD on his woman's, uh, on, the, on his, uh, his bride's body and, and everything about her, doesn't it? He loves her. He looks at her and he, and he just is so excited. And he delights in everything. It isn't crude. And men note that a hmm wouldn't suffice. Or, yes, you look great. That doesn't, doesn't wash, does it? I quote, I, th- I found this really fascinating, but quite amusing. Most men notice beauty like a radar notices ships. But here, this man notices, notices her beauty like a telescope. That is, he's not looking at anyone else. What is he doing? And he is here, he's stirring affection for his wife and in his wife alone. Now, two things as we finish this point. Don't be selfish and don't be stupid. Both men and women, I think, we, we must be creatively, um, creatively complement uh, our loves. It may seem easy when you're dating, but the point is that we're not to stop. Notice this is when they've started at the point of getting married. Don't awaken love before it's right time. Don't say too much too soon. But when the time comes, well, let the floodgates open and don't close them. Don't be selfish. You will both lose out if you are. And likewise, don't be stupid. Don't be stupid and lie. Now, don't describe your wife and your husband as you want them to be. Yeah? Or as you remember them when you first met them. Describe and delight in their beauty as they are. If someone gives it a go, you know what it's like. You know, you might say something, you might flounder a little bit, a bit of embarrassed, a bit of a chuckle, you know. Don't, don't then sort of go, oh, well, he didn't, he didn't describe me like the song of songs that a poet did, you know. It's like, it's, that was rubbish, five out of ten. You know, hold up some board, <laughs> try again in six months. Think about it next time, will you? You know, all this kind of thing. No. Don't be critical, be thankful. They may not be the poet as we see here. They may not strum a song for you. Don't worry, that's not me. I can't, I can't do that one. You know, they, they may not be great with the words that they've tried to employ, but if they've worked hard to express their love for you in their way, please try and delight in that, which will encourage them more. And if you haven't... Uh, worked it out. Do you, see, do you see why this is so important in our culture? This man sees his woman, he recognises her, and he delights in her every detail. And, and, and we live in a culture where, uh, men and women this, but women, they dress up so much to be seen to be, and to be noticed, but rarely are they truly seen. As I said, men are like radars and they see everything, but in a sense they see nothing. A woman is like just a dot on a screen. But here, the man focuses in like a telescope and he delights in her. And she is flawless to his exclusive and attentive gaze. And you have got to ask, you know, 
to a culture out there looking in, they'll be going, oh, well, you're missing out, you know, he's not going around, he's not seeing lots of other people. And, you know, it, uh, is this man really missing out? Is this woman really missing out? Well, let's see. Let's see how they both respond. Let's go to our third point, as we see the joy of consummated love. This woman has uh, felt the penetrating gaze uh, and heard the delight of a man. She feels loved and she feels cherished. And now we can, we can uh, well, they can't contain themselves any longer, can they? The time, the sense has come. Look at verse 8. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Uh, descend from the, and, and so on. Previously, back in chapter 2, verse 10, he, he'd come, he'd said twice, hadn't he? Arise with me, come with me, woman. She wasn't willing then. The time wasn't right. But now she is willing. He's calling her to come down, essentially from the danger of those places, and from the, from the country, to come and to be in his safety. Why? Verse 9. You stole my heart. My sister, my bride, you've stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes. See, now we get to the language of bride. It's the first time. They're now married. Hooray, we can all say, at last. But it's interesting, he also calls a sister here, which might, you know, we might think that's a bit strange. But it's a term of closeness, like we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Is a closeness. And he invites her and opens his heart to her because she's stolen it. And he isn't too proud to say that, is he? He's willing in his love to make himself vulnerable for his bride. You've stolen my heart. She has ravished his heart with her eyes and just a glimpse of a necklace. Notice it doesn't take a few beers or a G&T, does it? Her love is more pleasing, verse 10, than wine. You might say... Uh, some people have translated that in the past, that he's drunk in her love. Totally captivated, if you like. So much so that he's eager to make what is verbal and emotional rightly now physical. Firstly, by her smell. Her, her smell is intoxicating to her, and that's, I think, in a good way. Um, her kisses are sweet, and nothing is left out here. Verse 12, he celebrates her virginity. She's that sealed fountain. That is, she's kept herself for him. She's pure for him. And it's the most wonderful gift that he wants to celebrate. The same image is used to describe the adulterer, actually, in, in Proverbs 5. There the adulterer's uh, spring overflows into the streets for everyone. Here, she's a sealed uh, fountain for him and him alone. Verse 13 to 15 again, may seem strange. Why this whole list of fruit and veg that, you know, you can afford, can't order that stuff from Ricardo, can you? But, you know, essentially, what's this married man now talking about his bride? He's essentially describing something that is totally invaluable to him. Incredibly valuable, sorry. It's a list of what would be then very special, exclusive fruits. Rare and precious in his sight is his bride. And the image of the fruit is essentially saying, she is sweet and ready to devour. How does she respond? Is she ready? Verse 16, I think, is fairly clear. As she calls for her love to be awakened. All the language of wind and blowing on garden fragrance, all this kind of stuff. Remember, it's poetry. Trying to draw two literal lines here. Some have. 
I think it gets a little bit kind of smutty, but essentially it's saying, don't, well, in, we're not to also overlook the incredibly intimate nature of sexual union here. Uh, I'm not saying anything goes, I'm just saying uh, we're not to be too prude, but also not to be too smutty. What about the man? Is he happy? Verse 1 of chapter 5. I've come into my garden, my, the place of fertility. We know what they're talking about here. My sister, my bride. I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb, eaten my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. I wonder, did you notice any sense of regret there for him? Not at all. He's absolutely thrilled, isn't he? He's had to wait, he's had to prepare, he's had to, you know, all that anticipation. But he's been patiently God-honouring and honouring to her. And he's thrilled. Absolutely thrilled. Even the friends get a word in as well. Look at this. Eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. It's an extraordinary picture, isn't it? Your friends are kind of like, yay, go for it, yeah, keep going. So what initially had taken place in our hearts now has taken place physically. And the order is right, isn't it? It's commitment, intimacy. And they rejoice in its fulfilment. Now, what do we make of all of this as we kind of close here, really? Is it worth waiting for? Is it worth waiting for? It seems here that the uniqueness and exclusivity of their love being consummated at its time makes that consummation so much more satisfying. We wait or we spoil. And there's no in-between. I think it's also a warning against compromise as well. Thinking, ooh, you know, he, he or she will do. You know, they're, they're not married, and, you know, they, they're a person of the opposite sex, you know, they, they're not a close family member, you know, all the kind of the tick boxes that people go through the Bible and say, oh, those are the things they'll do. I, it's so dangerous. These guys are drunk, literally, in each other's love. His heart rejoices for her. Don't compromise. Third point on this, I think, notice that virginity, I think, is absolutely beautiful. We must not be embarrassed to teach that to our children. They need to hear it, because they won't hear it anywhere else. I don't think this is prudish or boring, but joyful and liberating. To have only known one love or lover in your life is a sweet and a beautiful thing. Leaving the obvious to last, sexual intimacy in a marriage is a beautiful gift, isn't it? Don't be open, don't open that gift before it's time. Imagine you do that at Christmas, what a spoil spoil. You ruin it. Don't do that. And this is something so much more precious. This passage speaks obviously about the intimate joy and delight of marriage expressed in sexual union. We see that, don't we? It's, it's so obvious. And as we close, look, I've put the same point there again, the joy and delight of marriage. Simply because I want to address the fact that this is not a reality for all. The reality of this erotic love poem, uh, which we're saying, beautiful though it is, is not something all of us can and all of us will enjoy, whether single or married. Circumstances may preclude or frustrate this to be a reality for you. But there is something, there's something more for all of us, and it's something 
we all must remember if we are Christians here today. Marriage is given for us, but it also points us to something greater, a deeper, more wonderful spiritual reality. Jesus, of course, I've mentioned this and I will continue to mention it because it's so important that we grab hold of this. Jesus continually speaks as those uh, that he is married essentially to his people. Ephesians 5, the church is described as the bride of Christ. And interestingly, when Jesus speaks of his return and when others speak of his return, he often speaks in terms of what we've seen here, the wedding feast. If you like the end point, the consummation, the final thing that we've all been waiting for, when the bride has made herself ready, which is the language of Revelation 19. And when he comes, when the Lord Jesus comes, it won't be on a jeweled sofa with wood from, um, you know, from Lebanon. 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us when the dead in Christ are raised, he will descend with all the angels and we will meet him in, his, in the air and be in his love for eternity. What about the consummation of our marriage with Christ? Have you ever thought about what the fulfilment looks like? As we, the bride, when we're brought together in his eternal love, what will that look like? Is it worth waiting for, preparing for, living for today? I'm going to read six verses which I crawl back to so often. This is what it will be like. And you have to ask the question, is it worth waiting for? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God. And they will be my children. Let's pray as we close. Lord God and Heavenly Father, for those of us who are married, we thank you for that, that blessing, that gift. And may we honour our spouses, but also you in our marriages. For those of us who are not married, and for all of us, may we see the marriages here, and may they point to the Lord Jesus. And may we all know that one day, we as his bride will be gathered And we will know all that we've just heard. No more frustration, no more waiting. But in those moments, 
and for eternity. We will know that the wait was worth it as we're wrapped up in your love and your arms forever. Amen.